Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show. Al wants to crash the stock market. If they really didn't want the market to go down, they would change their tune. But they do. If they engineer a soft landing, it's pure luck. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined by repeat guest, Mr. Stephen Van Meter. Steve, how you doing? Great, Michael. Thanks for having me back. I know it's been a long time, and it's great to be back and uh, talk to you today. Yeah. And thanks for calling in remotely from your uh, castle in, in Scotland there. Uh, <laughs> it looks lovely. Thanks for taking time away from nature. <laughs> yeah, it's my pleasure. Yeah. For all the people listening on audio, Steve's got a great background. <laughs> it looks like a castle. Um, awesome. Steve, there's there's a lot of different places that we could start. Uh, frankly, it's been a very interesting last couple of weeks for markets. Uh, I'd actually like to start with the question of, so we're, we're recording this on May 11th. Uh, the CPI print just came in. Uh, it was hot. It's slightly lower uh, from, from what it was in, in March, uh, but it came in at 8.3%. That's above the 8.1% that the consensus estimate was. So I guess my, my question to you is because I think it will inform so much of the direction that markets are headed in over the course of the next year or two. Have we seen peak inflation yet? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Mike. And I think we're really, really close if if we're not already, because last month I think it was eight and a half percent year over year. Now we're down to, I think you said 8.3. If we're not at peak, we've got to be really, really close to it. And you know, you start to look at things like the, the strong dollar is going to be at play at some point in here. You've got a lot of imports coming to the United States that are cheaper than domestic production. You know, all these factors are going to come in. We're seeing crude oil prices. You know, they're they're coming down. I mean, not substantially enough that you're going to see a huge drop in the CPI, but they're not running up more. So that's going to have you know, a, a factor in the formula. So as consumer price growth slows, the year-over-year comp should come down. But I think one of the challenging things here, unless we see just a flash outright deflation, which there's nothing at the moment suggesting that's going to happen tomorrow, it's going to be a slow ride down on that year-over-year comp. And the frightening thing, at least investors should be thinking about, is that's going to keep the Fed in play for a really long time or long enough until something does break and there's a deflationary crash and then all of a sudden they're they're going to quit. But yeah, I, I think we're pretty close if not seeing the peak now. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I guess within kind of some of those some of those categories, right, like where do we start to see respite first? Right. There's kind of the the used car index that people like to tout. Right. There's uh, owner's equivalent rent. There's food and energy, at least in headline, if not core. Like any thoughts on where we start to see the respite kind of come in first when it comes to inflation? Yeah, probably the energy sector. I mean, there's still a lot of stuff going on with food shortages. I know they change the the car calculation. I haven't had a chance to look into it. Uh, but from what I've seen, just a little bit on people commenting about it, that's going to take a couple of months for it to really filter through. But you look at energy, it's really a big driver of the CPI. And you know, crude oil is not making new highs at this point. So as long as the tail is catching up to it, it should slow that year-over-year comp down a little bit. And I think that's where we start to see it. And then you start looking at you know the broad equity market and the energy sector is like the only thing that's left up. So as demand gets pulled back by the Fed tightening, you know, we should see demand for energy come down, crude oil prices, energy stocks come down, and then all of a sudden you'll see the CPI drop you know, on a regular basis. 
Yeah. So, you know, moving past inflation here, uh, you know, kind of the next obvious thing to talk about is get your view on on bonds, right? It's great. I'm talking to the bond king. <laughs> I don't, I've got the castle, if not the crown right now. But um, I'd love to get your thoughts because, you know, on the one hand, you know, to borrow our, our car uh, metaphor here, like it has been a little bit like watching a slow motion car wreck, right? You had the Fed back in November, whatever, start signaling that they were going to start tightening. Bonds kind of started to move, but people, the equity markets weren't quite moving yet. And now all of a sudden, everything seems to be unfolding at once. You've got not only the short end of the curve, you know, but the, the long end, right? The 10-year and the 30-year moving up, uh, yield curve uh, flattening, if not inverting briefly. What, what is your view, I guess, on, on bonds at the current moment? Yeah, because uh, I'm sure many of your guests are watching right now saying, man, he was really, really wrong. And absolutely, no, no doubt. I'm completely shocked that we saw this big move in rates. I mean, it really doesn't make a lot of sense. And so the question you know, I start to look at is what was driving it? And you start looking back at history and you know, was it the Federal Reserve? Because a lot of people say, well, Steve, how, how can you not see that the Fed raises rates? But the, the Fed raising rates really doesn't impact the long end of the curve substantially. I mean, you can look back and see that there's times the Fed raised rate and the long end of the curve went down. So the idea that you get this sudden surge in long rates I mean, I get the front of the curve. Makes sense. It does follow more along the lines of the Fed's path or projected path. But what I think happened is a lot of people look back to the 70s, saw the inflation, and then just started selling. I mean, you start looking at retail investors. You know, some people are saying, well, it's Japan selling. And unfortunately, we don't have any data to show that because the government data on foreign holding treasury securities is rather lag. So we don't know uh, if it's a sovereign selling, if it's all foreign selling. But so far, I do know it's a lot of retail selling. And I think that pushes some you know, large managers as they see outflows to trigger them to end up being forced sellers. And all of a sudden you get algorithmic selling, you get other people selling. And next thing you know, you get an outright collapse and you start looking at you know, okay, let's take that aside. The fact that, okay, there's no way I could have predicted this. No way I thought this was coming, but you look at the slowdown in credit and you say, well, it doesn't really make sense. There should be such a move higher in rates because a lot of people don't understand the bond market, but we can, we can put it in really simple format. You know, you go to a car dealer, what's their product? Their product is car. And, you know, so they get a car from a manufacturer and if the car sits on the lot and we've all been there, we've all gone and looked at a car I'm like, man, that car there never is, you know, it's not moving, it's not selling. And what happens? The dealer starts putting a discount on it. And then next sometimes the manufacturer will put a, you know, a promotion or a discount. Then there'll be a subsidized lease. Somehow, some way the value of that car will drop enough and if somebody will come along and say, I don't care if that's a wonky color and weird option package. At that price, I'm a buyer. Well, let's let's take that perspective now and look at it from a bank. What's the product of a bank? You know, when you, when you go into a bank, what are they selling you? A checking account, savings account? No, no, no. I'll sell you a loan. And so you start looking at their product, which is lending. And as rates rise, if, if you're going to see something sustainable in higher interest rates, you have to see a demand for people wanting to borrow those higher rates. And what are we seeing? Just the exact opposite. Now, we're, we're seeing demand in credit card and, and space and something like that, but that's more due to inflation and people being unable to keep up with that. When you look at the refinance index on mortgages, it becomes very clear the demand for loans is declining. And that tells you that in these this move higher in interest rates, whatever the catalyst, whoever was doing it, whatever person behind it or people behind all the selling, 
it's going to reverse and reverse very violently because there is no demand. And you think back to the car dealer, if they don't move cars, they don't make money. So they have a high incentive to turn their inventory over and move that, those cars off the lot. Well, what if a bank doesn't lend? Well, that gets really interesting because in our monetary system, and, and Michael, you and I have talked about the plumbing and you've had some you know, great people on the show to talk about how the inner workings go. But when a customer makes a deposit at a commercial bank, they have to pay you interest. Now, it's not a big amount right now, but they still have to pay you interest. Well, where do they get the money from? They don't make it up. It's not, you know, it doesn't come out of you know, thin air. They either have to lend against your deposit or they have to go buy an interest-bearing asset, such as a treasury or mortgage-backed security. So what happens is as lending demand slows down, the banks intuitively have to start buying bonds. And think of it like when you get a mortgage and the, and the mortgage officer says, hey, do you want to buy your rate down and give us money up front? Well, you can buy your rate down. Well, guess what? The banks can effectively buy interest rates down by purchasing bonds. So what you'll notice is as lending demand pulls back and slows down, it's going to have immediate impact on bank profits. But then all of a sudden you'll see rates come down because the same reason the price on a car that's not moving comes down is it has to fall until you see demand again. And that case is why we always see rates make new all-time lows during recessions or after they have a big run-up. Yeah, I, I really like that uh that perspective there, Stephen, that metaphor is really helpful for me to understand, right? Like people don't think about it as a, as a product, right? To buy and sell. And it also helps to think of it like from like, let's, let's say the lens of an entrepreneur, right? Like if I were to borrow money, right? Theoretically, what I need is a project product to invest it in that will return higher than whatever interest I'm I'm borrowing at, right? Um, my, my counterpoint or what I would maybe uh, throw back in your direction is that makes sense in a in a free market environment, right? Where the rate of interest is actually being set by demand for credit. But I think what you could argue is that, especially for uh, sovereign debt markets for a long time, there has been this consistent buyer in the form of the Fed, right? And that has maybe altered, right, the signal that yields are sending us just in terms of demand for actual demand for credit, aka the Fed has kind of been putting their finger on the scale. And now it seems like they're taking it off. Uh, so maybe that explains some of the, the spike in yields. I mean, what would you kind of say to that? Yeah, see, I, I would I would disagree with that because mm -hmm. first of all, the Fed wasn't actually buying bonds. What they were doing is they were buying these bonds from the banks who actually were taking customer deposits and using that deposited money to buy the bonds. And all the Fed was coming in and saying, "Hey, we're going to buy that bond off of you and give you, a, you know, effectively a token or reserve what they call a reserve asset as a placeholder while we take it." So the, it'd be different if the Fed was going out on the open market and buying bonds, and they weren't. So they were effectively forced the banks to take customer deposits and use it to buy bonds. But, but the Fed's play now doesn't matter because, you know, in fact, it is appropriate, very appropriate for the Fed to step out. They should have done it sooner because the way the system should normally work, Michael, is foreign investors should be the largest purchaser of treasury securities. And in any given day, that's what should happen. And so as we export dollars through the global monetary system, with the dollar being the reserve, you see dollars building up on and foreign holdings, you know, whether it's central banks or you know commercial banks, foreign commercial banks, it doesn't matter. Where, wherever it's building up, and that becomes their savings account. But but dollars don't pay interest. So what they do is they take their excess dollars and they go to treasury auctions and they buy. So when you think about QE, all QE does is, I mean, at least what it should be doing is when foreign demand goes down, the Fed kind of fills in the gap. 
Well, foreign demand is off the charts right now. It's very strong. Every auction you're seeing, you know, strong demand, strong demand, strong demand. And that's the way it should work. So if you start really digging into it, the fact that the Fed took their foot off the gas and stopped you know, doing QE doesn't actually matter because foreign investors have been eagerly buying up U.S. treasuries. And, you know, as we're speaking, there's a 10-year treasury auction. Uh, this week, there was a three-year. Uh, I don't know uh, because we started our conversation at the time of the auction. I don't know know what the tenure did, but I'm assuming it's pretty strong, again, because this is how the system should work. And the more you see in demand from foreign purchasers, that actually ends up driving rates down. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to keep in mind as well, right, is foreign purchasers and the, the relative monetary policy and interest rates of other countries, right, versus the United States. Uh, I think, hey, actually, I'll, I'll get your opinion here on, um, you know, the dollar milkshake theory uh, from our mutual friend, Brent Johnson, right, uh, who is kind of, uh, he was, the theory was put into question, let's say, over the course of the last year or so. We've obviously seen a pretty precipitous rise uh, in the Dixie, right, which is, you know, it cleared 104 or something like that. Um, so definitely a strengthening dollar. And yeah, I can see, you know, U.S. yields and, and, and the dollar looking much more attractive compared to some opportunities abroad. Um, keep, keeping in mind, too, that some of these buyers, they don't have an option, right? They have to have a certain percentage of their portfolio allocated to, uh, you know, to bonds and, and things like that. When these U.S. dollars go overseas, they're holding on to them. And so to put maybe in a different perspective is in a gold standard, what is your goal? Uh, to accumulate gold. So in a dollar standard, what is your goal? To accumulate dollars. But the problem with a gold standard is there was no recycling mechanism to get gold to move back and forth. Well, in the dollar standard, there is. It's you can recycle dollars back by buying future dollars or treasury securities. So this mm. is really quite interesting when you start thinking in that perspective. So as dollars build up, you know, say at a foreign central bank, again, they don't pay interest, but they're the savings account. They're showing that you're prosperous in this dollar reserve system. So why would you just sit on an asset that has pays no interest? It, it, it does you no good, it's particularly mm. when you know that by design of the system, you have to recycle those dollars back to the United States while you go out and buy treasury securities. So the more you see an imports to the United States, which occur during periods of high inflation, and it makes perfect sense. If, if I'm a US manufacturer and my costs are going up because of inflation, because you know pressured by my workers to raise wages, well, a, a company a producer, say, in Asia or Mexico doesn't have those higher cost pressures. Now, they might have some, but they're not going to have what I have. So they can undercut me every day. So they're going to start building the same product or a comparable product, exporting it to the United States, undercutting me, and they're going to get dollars. But again, those dollars don't do anything for them. So mm. might as well earn interest on. So you just, instead of building up a cache of you know, dollars, you build up a cache of U.S. Treasury securities that could be converted to dollars down the road if you need them and nicely pay some interest along the way. And then you get that nice recycling method uh, cycle of the system and everything starts humming along. So yeah, the fact that we're seeing high inflation in the U.S., you're seeing that matching high imports, which is what you should see, and then you should see that equal high demand from U.S. Treasury securities from foreign purchasers. Right. And that recycling dynamic, right, essentially is what underpins the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia, right? That's kind of the whole basis for the petrodollar system, right? Which in really broad strokes is we wanted foreign investors to come in and buy U.S. bonds and finance our spending. And Saudi Arabia wanted a way to invest, right, the profits from their lucrative oil 
you know, uh, farming business essentially. So uh, I can see how that kind of relationship all works. The one thing I'd like to kind of get your thoughts on there in that relationship is, you know, some of these sanctions that we're levying at Russia, right? I know this, this gets talked about a lot on Twitter, but if the, if the real relationship here, right, is the U.S. essentially is this hub for recycling profits, right, from other from other countries and treasuries actually become the dominant form of, of reserve and the, the vehicle to do that. Um, we just froze an enormous amount of treasuries, right, uh, from Russia's central bank. China, right, which we are entering, depending on your perspective, a, a, either a cold war or at least a geopolitical competition for power, uh, they're sitting on over a trillion dollars worth of U.S. treasuries, right? So how does this dynamic of us just being willing to step into the global financial system freeze it? How does that impact that whole recycling relationship? Yeah, well, if, if you want to play, if you want to play the game, you got to know the rules. And one of the rules is we have absolute control of that. Now, the one thing about Russia, and we know directly, they actually drained their treasury holdings uh, down. I think a year or two ago. Now they may have had some in another country that you know was domiciled in that name of that country that was theirs. We don't, you know, there's no way for us to know. But yeah, you see this fear coming out of China is. Well, wait a second. You know, they they could effectively freeze you know our our reserves, our dollar reserves, our treasuries. Absolutely, we can. But that's again, you know, if you're going to play in the system where the dollar is a global reserve, you give that power and that right to whatever country that is. And if you want to participate in the system, you have to be willing to do it. And that's a risk you have to take. And so China's problem is they're 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 nervous, you know. Hey, if we you know go invade Taiwan, which would really make the U.S. unhappy and most likely would cause us to show up there for a number of reasons. Uh, one in particular, a lot of people may not know that uh, the chip manufacturer there, uh, one, which is I believe the largest in the world, manufactures chips for our fighter jets. So if you think for one moment that the U.S. is going to let China waltz in there and get that technology, yeah, that's not going to happen. I mean, there's yeah. there's just no possible way that we're going to just sit back and say, okay, yeah, you can have that special technology by just taking it over. So we're going to show up there, but at the same time, we could levy you know, this power and freeze their reserves. And so China has a choice. You know, do you want to participate in the system? And they're an exporting nation, the largest. We're the largest importing nation here in the U.S. So if they want to export to us and be an exporting nation, then they have to be willing to build their reserves of dollars. Now, they could they could sell those to another country and, and swap them for euro reserves or yen reserves. They could do whatever they want, JGBs, you name it. They could feasibly do it, but, but they can't. It's not. There's no possible way they're going to be able to pull it off. They know it, and that's the risk of, of being a part of the dollar system. Either you choose a path of tr mutual trade, or you choose land grab. Mm -hmm. Pick your choice. Uh, one of the one of the videos that you did recently um, was on China's big banks, right? So danger and kind of delinquencies and and the rising rate of delinquencies in, in China's financial system. Can you walk us through, um, you know, kind of your thoughts there and, and why you think that's an important issue to point out? Well, yeah, it's in, in any debt-based system. I mean, whether it's China, the U.S., Europe, Japan. I mean, it doesn't matter. You have it's the same issue. Is you need an expansion of debt, and that's the beauty of it. And when you understand, you know, people, people say, "Hey, rates have to rise," and you know, they're going to go, you know, five, six, ten percent. It's like, well, if no one wants to borrow at those rates, you have a severe problem because a debt-based economy needs a creation of new money to persist. So when you shut down an economy as as China did, and you take people's ability away to earn a living. 
And that translates into how do I pay on my loans? Well, okay, well, we'll extend you some more credit. All right, that's great, right? Uh, we'll let you skip a couple of payments. Oh, great. So, gee, thanks. We'll just tack those payments right back on the end. Hey, don't you worry about it. Uh, but the challenge, of course, becomes is what if the economy cannot recover fast enough and people are unable to make payments on a loan? Or maybe they just feel disenfranchised and they say, look, I, I, I'm not going to win here. Um, so I'm, I need to feed my family. I'll just stop paying on my debt. And next thing you know, you've got a massive problem because in a debt-based economy, not only do you need an expansion of debt, but if a lot of people start going into delinquent and then default, you can collapse the whole financial system very easily. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. I talk to a lot of fast-growing crypto-native funds, crypto banks, exchanges, and the like, and they all tell me they have the same two problems. One, their treasury management setup sucks. They've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions. Two, they are not happy with their current security setup. They're sharing passwords, they're sending test transactions, and they're worried that their funds might be at risk. Fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you. They're a one-stop shop portal, which automatically plugs into exchanges, trading venues, etc. They source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy. And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry-leading technology. Doesn't matter if you're a two-person crypto fund or a 2,000-person crypto exchange, these guys have you covered. And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high-integrity team. They ship product like no other. I would trust them with my own funds. So click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you. Very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you. And then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell him I sent you. You know, it, it seems like China, I mean, again, this is, I'm being very cognizant of the fact that I'm getting a lot of my information about China from Western sources, right? Uh, yes. But a lot of it does seem to, to center around, right, obviously the tremendous amount of debt that they have. Um, and it's tough to trust numbers coming out of China, but it seems like the situation over there is even worse than our debt to GDP in the United States. But then there's also this kind of zero COVID policy that, as well that they have, um, right? So is it, there's a headline coming out of uh, Bloomberg today, China risks 1.6 million, $1. million deaths in virus tsunami if COVID zero is abandoned, according to a study. Um, so, you know, I guess, I suppose my question uh, is, it, it's hard to tell sometimes like shutting down Shanghai, is that a geopolitical kind of power move in squeezing supply chain and inflation on Western countries even more? Are they like genuinely concerned about the deaths of citizens over there? They don't have to be mutually exclusive, but I guess if you had to kind of look at, look at something like that, about what, what's really driving things over in China, I mean, you know, how do you, how do you ascribe causality there? Yeah, good question, right? I mean, is it really about COVID or is it about you know, hey, if we can crash the U.S. economy, uh, they'll they won't notice that we're going to send some soldiers over to Taiwan, right? You know, uh, and kind of actually, I had a similar view with Russia. Is if they could just do whatever you know damage to the U.S. stock market or the U.S. economy, the moment you get America to go into recession, we're we get we put the blinders on. We don't see anybody or anything else, right? It's all about us, all about what we're going through. But if we're doing well, oh, man, look at who, you know, they got a problem we can solve. They got a problem, let's tell them what to do. And so in a sense, if, if you can pull that off, if you can crash the U.S. market, crash, the, if you know, throw us into a recession, I, th- I think China could get away with a lot of things. And, and Americans aren't going to go, you know, call their politicians and be like, hey, hey, 
you know, China sent in some troops over to Taiwan. We need to go do something about it. They're like, no, they're like, look, I'm losing my house. I lost my 401k. My kids are hungry and the system's breaking. You know, what's going on? They get tunnel vision. So yeah. I, I think I, I think you could look at it both ways. I, I just, I don't know. I mean, unless there's something about the latest COVID strain that they know that we don't know that's really bad and they need to stamp it out before it gets worse. Or if it's just a form of economic warfare, but they're going to take their economy down with it. And that's what's on this. That's kind of bizarre because if they don't export, we don't import, they don't get dollars, their people, you know, lose too. So I, your guess is a good mine on this one. Yeah. So uh, speaking about putting on the blinders uh, when the U.S. goes through a recession, let me, let me ask you this from a very, very leading question for you here, right? Because there's obviously been a lot of pain in the stock market over the course of the last couple of months. Might get worse. What's your thought on just equity markets uh, in the U.S. in general? Like, do you see us heading towards, uh, let's say, sustained? We're already in bear market territory. Do you see us heading towards a sustained recession? Yeah, absolutely. There's no question. I mean, you look at the, I think you, we talked about earlier, the parts of the yield curve are inverting. And that is, you know, a big flag, uh, red flag for an incoming recession. And even you listen to, I mean, I just try to tell people, like, do you, do you listen to what Fed Chairman Powell is saying? He's saying, we want to pull back demand. That we want to bring demand down to the level of supply because we know we have a supply problem. We can't fix that. You know, we can't use monetary policy to to get more products built or you know fix supply chain issues. But if we can bring demand down, now we know the supply is bad because as you just talked about, China shut their economy down. They're not really sending stuff here. Now they will when they reopen. But to bring demand down that far is going to have a massive impact on corporate profits. You know, we so we know this is coming. We can see inflation adjusted earnings for employees are negative. Uh, and not just for you know week for you know I think thirteen weeks in a row. So and then we see debt levels back at all time highs, and so you start looking at this picture and saying all the equity market is starting to price in is that future growth and and inflation expectations are going down, and and then we're potentially in the very early stages of a bear market, which is interesting because a lot of people are out there buying these you know these dips. And you know, I think the Nasdaq, you know, Nasdaq clearly in a bear market, small caps in a bear market, the SP not too far off at managing when we actually have bad news. I mean, you look at Amazon earnings and, and their stock dropped 10% in, in a minute, right? And after hours yeah. trading, was their earnings really that bad? I mean, I remember the great financial crisis. That earnings were really bad. And it makes you wonder, is like, what happens when earnings are actually bad? Or when Apple has a bad quarter and then another one, because they're really, as we talked about before the show, they're holding up the market. You know, wait till something bad happens there. Where does all this thing go? Um, you know, and then you have the Fed pulling liquidity out and very clearly saying, we're going to continue doing that because they know. I mean, if you want to pull back demand, just get the stock market to go down. It'll work. So everyone thinks, oh, the Fed's going to capitulate. No way, not not with inflation running at you know eight point three percent year over year. No chance. Yeah. Well, here's what it all comes down to, right? As well, I mean, the Fed is is they're they're stuck between they're in a sell and cryptus type situation here uh, because on the one hand they've got inflation bearing down on them. I mean, these are these are nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties levels of inflation, right? Eight point three, eight point five percent headline inflation. At the same time, the what the market is used to, and we know that the Fed hates spooking the market is that whenever, whatever they're kind of looking at, you know, starts to blow up. And in this case, we're talking a lot about equity valuations, but we know that they're going to be looking at the credit markets as well. Um, 
you know, they kind of swoop in and, and save the day. And I think they're probably worried in the back of their heads is if everyone is, is used to that, what happens when we eventually rug pull, essentially, um, you know, the U.S. the U.S. bond market? And, uh, I, you know, like we're starting to see warning signs of that for the first time, right? Yields on, on high yield debt right, are creeping up in the United States, which is kind of that first warning sign. So, I mean, what do you what do you do, Steve? If if you're sitting in in Powell's chair, I mean, are you gonna are you gonna rug pull the bond market or are you gonna not fight inflation? Because it doesn't seem like they can do both. Yeah, Powell wants to crash the stock market. Mm. I, I, there, there's no question. In fact, high yield yields on high yield junk bonds are at recessionary levels. I mean, it's frightening of where they're where they're going to go when things break. But why does Powell want to? Why does he want lower stock prices when he's wanted higher stock prices? Well, it's just simple. 90% of the stock market is only the 10%, 10 wealthiest percent of the U.S. population. Mm. The other 90% owns a negligible amount, if any. So if, if you own you know, a few shares of the S&P 500 because you're in that 90% and it goes down by 50%, it doesn't impact you. It's mm. not going to change your day-to-day spending. It's not going to change anything that you do. I mean, you might not even notice, might not even care. But you take it down 50% and the wealthy people who are out you know, consuming – yeah, they're going to stop consuming immediately. So, and it doesn't, and again, you're only impacting 10% of the US population. So, big deal. It's the fastest way to fix the problem. And everyone says that's not what they want. Then why, then why is the market down as much as they have? If you think back in March of 2020, the market, you know, the NASDAQ was down the same, about the same percentage or very close to it. And they freaking were going nuts. Now it's like, oh, guess what? Quantitative tightening starting June 1st. Uh, we're going to have a meeting in the middle of June based on today's CPI. And Powell was very clear, one month will not change our path. Well, you got another 50 basis points hike coming in the middle of June. And then you've got, you know, they talked about the next few meetings after that, potentially 50 basis points. So if they really didn't want the market to go down, they would change their tune. But they do because, again, they know they can throttle consumption very, very quickly. And they're betting because, only again, 10% of the people own 90% of the stocks that they can pull that off and not take the rest of the economy into recession. Now, I think they're going to take the rest of the economy into recession, but that's their game plan. Despite what people on FinTwit say, right, the, there's a limited amount, right, that the Fed looks at uh, the equity markets, but they do pay a lot of attention to the credit markets, right? So in this in this kind of need, I agree, they want to destroy demand, right? They want to get inflation under control. But what happens, like the X factor there is what if they break something in the bond market on the way there? And we know if you rewind to March of 2020, right, the reason that they hopped in so aggressively and unleashed that liquidity bazooka was not because the S&P was falling so aggressively, although I'm sure they were watching that too. It was, you know, there was not normal functioning, right, of the U.S. Treasury market in general. So I guess my question is, along this plan, right, of hiking rates and destroying demand and letting stocks fall, what are something snaps in the bond market on the way down? Yeah, that's, well, that's a $10,000 question right there, is yeah. will, will they react to it? And so far, the market's been handling, the economy's been handling higher rates, which is a surprise. I did not think we could get rates this high without something breaking. I, I'm completely shocked at the fact that rates are as high as they are and nothing snapped because we've seen them snap uh, at, at much you know lower levels relative to how fast they moved higher. So maybe Powell will just shrug it off and say, "Hey, look, there's enough cash in the system." He's kind of they they kind of made it clear. Look, there's a lot of there's there's a perception there's a lot of savings out there. I don't agree with that. They look at the overnight reverse repo, which is effectively the Fed backing money, backstopping money markets. There's 1.7 trillion, maybe more. I, I don't look at it every day. 
So I don't know exactly where it's at, uh, but they're looking at all this. And I think Powell kind of insinuated, I don't, I don't believe it was his most recent FOMC press conference. And, and maybe it was just uh, something he was out speaking about, but he effectively said, look, we've been bashed up in the markets for a long time. Now it's your turn. Like we, we don't have the power to do that because we got to deal with inflation, but you do because you've got all this money. And we and, and from the Fed's perspective, if they could get, you know, again, if the market went down 50%, maybe there's things that broke in the credit markets and all of this $1.7 trillion that was sitting in overnight reverse repo left because people felt there was an opportunity to invest. You're not going to hurt the Fed's feeling. You're going to solve a problem. One dichotomy that you're kind of seeing, I think, is, uh, you know, talking about things breaking. Things are breaking in the stock market, just not in, it's not showing up in the indices to the degree that you might expect, right? Because you have like a lot of these pandemic era darlings, right? Like talked about a lot on this show, but like the Pelotons and the Zooms of the world. I mean, those things are below, they're, they're like at their pandemic bottoms. I mean, they're March 2020 bottoms. I mean, forget about even the 2019 highs or whatever. Um, and, and it's other stocks too. I mean, it's like PayPal is 80% off the highs, Twilio's, you know, 80 to 90% off the highs. Like, what people generally consider as like pretty good, solid companies, if not growthy, I mean, they're getting absolutely taken to the woodshed here. The NASDAQ hasn't moved all that much. And part of the reason for that is, um, you know, if you if you go look at the, well, this is the S&P, but, you know, one through 10, it's Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, Tesla, Berkshire, Johnson Johnson, United Health Group, Meta. And then it's NVIDIA after that. So like my, and if you look at actually the, the Russell 2000, right, which is a more diverse representation of companies, you that's actually testing the, the 2019 high uh, right now. So basically, the reason the indices haven't moved is just mega cap tech. And I'm remembering something that Jeremy Grantham said, you know, he was living through the dot-com bubble bursting. He kind of described it in slow motion, which is the first thing to go are the super high the growthy ones, like the things that everybody knows are super overvalued. Those things tank. People, you know, retrace into the the quote unquote safe things, right? And then eventually it's capitulations when those things go. So by that framework, what we should be looking for is capitulation in the S&P and NASDAQ, which essentially at this point is like Apple, Google, Amazon, Tesla. Haha. But I mean, is that what we're waiting for here? Is that what real capitulation looks like? Or, or what do you think? Because there are signs yeah. of capitulation. Yeah, and I've spent some time thinking about this. And you think about, okay, like people were selling bonds. Where did they go? They went into equities. Well, they go into market cap-weighted equities. Right. So really, if you look at the S&P, you're almost down to who hasn't broken, Tesla and Apple? Right. And the other ones have all had yeah. earnings that caused their stocks to drop. So what happens is people, particularly retail investors, they look at their statements and they sell what's down. They they always sell what's down. I mean, it it they'll, I, you could you can tell people buy low and sell high, and they'll agree with. You. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they will literally do the opposite. I mean, they do it all the time. So what happens is they're selling these losers, and what are they doing? They're cramming more and more and more into these top end of these market cap weighted indices, and then all of a sudden one day they're going to break. Those last two companies are going to go. We know that Apple's bound to have a bad earnings because of the supply chain going on, what's going on in China. We know inevitably that they can't get enough phones here to get people to buy them. I mean, and th their day is going to come. And when they snap, the whole market, it's, it's, the thing just goes. And that's yeah. just the way it works. One thing I don't understand is why Apple isn't, why Apple hasn't been more affected by these supply chain issues. The only thing that I can postulate is that they have so much relative bargaining power 
across their supply chains that they can basically crowd out, you know, smaller buyers. And even if there's diminished capacity across the supply chains, it's like we're Apple, you know, uh, and they kind of they kind of step in there and wave it around, and then everyone has to respect it. Uh, it's I've I've been you know pretty surprised that they've held up uh, the, to the degree that they have. And Tesla's like, I don't want to cast any aspersions. I have no opinion on Tesla. I'm actually a big fan of Elon Musk, but. Uh, I've been surprised that that's held up as well as it has to. I don't know. But again, it's market cap weighting. Yeah. I mean, it, it, some of, a lot of this has to do, um, if you've ever watched or heard Mike Green's Rise of Passive uh, yeah. presentation, if you, if you haven't, if anyone's listening has not heard this, go onto YouTube um, and do a search for Mike Green Rise of Passive. And effectively, it's, it says it doesn't matter you know, if these companies make money or not, because passive investing concentrates so much money into the biggest part companies in the index that the stock can just go up no matter what. Well, the more investors that say, hey, I'm going to sell bonds, I'm going to sell my foreign stocks because they're going to sell emerging markets, I'm going to sell this, and I'm going to cram into these indices. All they're doing is buying a ton of, you know, Apple, Tesla, and these other companies. And so they artificially prop them up until the liquidity is drained by the Fed and then the whole thing goes. I have never in my, at least, investing life uh, that I've been paying attention, and I'll caveat, I'm not, <laughs> I haven't been in markets for 30 years, but still, uh, I've never seen as much doom and gloom out there as I see right now. I mean, it is like, there's all all the classic signs, right? Like, I'm seeing all these bulls capitulate, I'm seeing grave dancing all over Twitter on failed projects, like, we don't have to get into it now, but like, the whole, you know, Luna UST thing is unfolding today. Um, lots, lots of that, I suppose. Maybe we haven't seen full capitulation yet. But I guess what I'd be curious, what I'd be curious for is what are you looking for? Is it that collapse in Apple and Tesla and the indices and maybe something in the bond market kind of blows up? But like, what will you be looking for uh, signs of a full capitulation? Retail investors to stop saying they're bearish and buying the dip at the same time. I mean, right now, it's what you're seeing is producing a lot of hedge funds are selling into retail flows. So retail investors, oh, I'm really bearish. And then they're buying. Because they look, oh, it's down 20%, it's down 30%, these are major indices. Well, last time was March 2020. They made, presumably, if they sold at some point, they made money. So they're saying, well, look, I, I can't lose now because it's already down. Well, the reality is, is you're the last buyer. And retail always buys at the top. And so until when, when the retail investor starts to capitulate and realize that this tide has turned against them, and they start to sell, and then they're going to flood into margin calls because they're margin. I mean, out the hill, so they they have no choice. They almost have to buy. And you know, every morning you can see, oh man, if the market opens down because the futures are down, it's like, oh well, here comes more margin calls. You know, does did it close in the red? Well, there's probably more margin calls. And next thing you know, they're gonna they're gonna keep committing money to this until they don't have any. And that's the beautiful thing about high inflation, high inflationary times, particularly when wages aren't keeping up with it, is you cannot afford to continue to throw money into the system. There's a point where you you get tapped out and you're like, well, I, I have five grand left, but gosh, man, uh, I've, I've torched the other 15, you know, trying to keep this thing afloat. And then all of a sudden there's that moment where you, you decide not to, and then the whole thing starts to unwind, you get margin call and you start to be a forced seller. And then the dominoes, you know, ball rolls downhill the other way and everyone gets run over. I will also say, though, for savvy investors, like, you know, the, the silver lining of these sorts of incidents is that they're market clearing in general, right? And, uh, you know, it's it's a shame, right? Uh, especially when it comes, if you've been buying, if you're retail, you've been buying the top for the last year or something like that, then you're underwater and it's probably going to take a little while. But, you know, for those of you who aren't and you have a steady stream of income and you want to start investing, I mean, these are good 
buying opportunities, right? And the capitulation that you're describing, right? Where there's kind of leveraged unwinds, right? And prices will probably get out of whack to the to the lower side of things as well. Um, and those will be buying opportunities for folks. If people are not afraid and that will happen. And yeah. people will people will tell you right now, straight to your face, oh yeah, I, will, I hope things go down a bunch, I'm gonna buy. You know what, I was, I was around, I was in the industry when the great financial crisis happened. People were literally afraid to buy. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're gonna see people get wiped out. You know, like this, like you mentioned this Luna thing. I saw, I saw something on Twitter where somebody had posted that they had lost 70% of their, you know, all their investable assets. They, they were effectively wiped out. You know, they, they said, I did all this research. I thought this was it. I put all my money and I, I'm, I'm effectively wiped out. And, and the comment at, their, at, their, at the end of their post was, I'm really disenchanted about investing. I don't know that I'll ever be able to approach investing again because I did so much research into this and I was wrong. And I think, Mike, we're going to see that happen again, that people really believe, oh, I've, I invested in a great company. I invested in a great process. I did this. And we have not seen really what happens when a market cap weighted market unwinds without the Fed's backstop of how far things can go down. I mean, we don't know. It can go down a lot. And that will change people's sentiment. They will be afraid to invest, even if they tell you, oh, no worries, man, market is at 50% of buy. What you, if you haven't been through that and you don't know what the news is saying, and you're thinking, I'm going to buy this company and the news is suggesting that they're literally teetering on the edge of implosion, you're afraid. And so you don't. And I think we're going to see a complete change in how uh, particularly the youth invest going forward uh, after this next clearing. I've got a question for you, a because I agree with everything that you just said. Uh, do you think that the Fed should have stepped in in 2020, interceded in the way that they did? Oh, the, the, the Fed should have been raising rates. The Fed should have not done what they did. I mean, Powell mm -hmm. made a huge mistake. He knows it. He's going to pay for it on the other end of it. Um, there is no doubt that easy monetary policy is aspirated where we're at now. I, won't, I don't want to say it caused it. But yeah, he made a big mistake and now he's paying for it because it's become political. You know, the, the man who effectively gave him his, his second term is highly likely, President Biden is highly likely to get voted out of office when his term is. Now, I'm not trying to be political, Democrat versus Republican, blah, blah, none of that. It's just a matter of fact. Go back in history and during periods of high inflation, what happens to the ruling party? Again, it doesn't matter who they are. In consumers, the voters, hey, I don't know what's causing this. It won't stop. I'm financially hurt by this. So who's in power? Oh, that president, gone. Congress, who's in charge? All of you, gone. And it's become a political issue to the point where he needs to get inflation down as fast as possible before the midterm elections. He, he's Because here's the thing, is do you think he's going to get a, a, appointed to a third term? Uh, it's, let's just... Let's just pretend Biden's going to lose his seat. Do we think the next president, whoever that could be, is going to say, hey, pal, you're, you're, you've done a bang up job. I want to give you another term. No way. He's, he's done and he knows it. So he's it's all political now and he's got no choice but to bring this thing down as quickly as possible. And he's going to pray to whatever God he believes in that he doesn't crash the whole system. But the problem is he's going to crash the whole system. All right. I, we've been a lot of doom and gloom here. Give me one positive thing to end on. One like silver lining about the situation that we find ourselves in. One thing that you're positive on. We've been a lot, a lot of doom saying here. So let's, let's leave with, with good vibes here. What's uh, something you're excited about just in general? 
Well, you know, every clearing out is an opportunity and Mm -hmm. you have to look at that when you invest. And a lot of people are very critical about me being wrong and I'm okay with that. You know, I mean, I'm I'm shocked as much as everyone else. Interest rates have gone up. It's very, you know, historically abnormal. But in the end of the day, when all this is cleared out, interest rates will go down. They'll be very, very low. Bond prices will be high. The few people like me that understand that will be very, very happy and we'll have an opportunity to buy risk assets, perhaps at one of the best opportunities in my life. And so there's always opportunity. It's just a matter of you know, where are you investing in the cycle? And, and most people you know, buy homes at the peak. You know, they invest at the peak. They do. And the key thing is if you could just break that cycle and it means being wrong, it means being ridiculed because you're not doing what everyone else is doing. But if you could start doing the opposite of what everyone else is doing, you have a tremendous opportunity out there and there will be some people that have that. Unfortunately, not many, but the system will heal. Something good will come out of it, I hope. Um, but there will be opportunity out there. Yeah, I agree. Steve, you've been very generous with your time. If folks want to find out more about you, the good work that you do, what's the best way to follow you, get more information? Yeah, thanks, Michael. The easiest way to find me is on my YouTube channel at uh, Stephen Van Meter. Just throw my name in the search engine or on Twitter. I'm at uh, Meter Stephen, M-E-T-R-E-S-T-E-V-E-N. But uh, I have a daily show on YouTube, so probably the easiest place to find me. Awesome. All right, Steve, this has been a ton of fun. Do I'm saying together, but I agree. I think uh, every, you know, silver lining to every cloud. So, uh, it's, But it's been a ton of fun chatting with you as always, and we'll have to get you back on the show soon. Yes, definitely. We're not going to wait a year. I was going to say, yeah, way too long. Um, <laughs> awesome, my friend. Well, thanks for coming on. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. 